Dr. Jasmine Marcelin is an infectious disease doctor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. How did a woman from Antigua end up in Nebraska? Well, through Canada, of course. It's a very interesting story that she uses to educate others and us about some of the challenges and stigmas that international medical graduates face in order to practice and when practicing in America, of which American medical graduates may not be aware. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Welcome back to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Today we have infectious disease doctor Jasmine Marcellin. Jasmine, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. So this podcast episode was was actually your idea, and I think it's a it's a great idea. We're going to talk about the challenges that international medical graduates face. So as someone who is an international med- medical graduate, first let's just talk about your your education and your training. Okay, Brad. So I was born in the um, island of Dominica in the Caribbean, and I spent a lot of my time there and uh, when I was in the, my teenage years, moved to another island uh, called Antigua. And so that's where I kind of finished off my high school and um, early college years before moving along to Halifax, Nova Scotia, where I got my undergrad degree in biology and chemistry. While I was in Canada, I had pretty much figured out that I was going to be a doctor in Canada. I knew that I wanted to be a doctor since I was about eight years old, but the concept of how to actually do it uh, was something that was still a little foreign to me. I just knew that I had to go to school, eventually get an undergrad degree, and eventually get to medical school, and then after that, it would work itself out. Sorry, there's a there's a big jump in there from the Caribbean to Nova Scotia. <laughs> yes, Could we just explore. How did I that get there? For a second, yeah, sure. So I, I went to an all girls Catholic school in Antigua um, for high school, and um, we had quite a few graduates from the 70s and 80s from our high school who had ended up going to Halifax, Nova Scotia. And I'm not quite sure how the initial connection was made, but St. Mary's University in Halifax is actually a, a Catholic university. So there's probably some sort of connection there with the dioceses. And so when I was in high school, there was a group of about three or four men and women who came from St. Mary's University who were alumni of St. Mary's. And they gave us this great presentation about this school in Canada. And what I, I don't remember a lot about what they actually said to us, but they showed us a video. And in that video, there was a lady who was walking around in shorts in the wintertime in Canada and um, walking through the, the skyways that connected the buildings. And she was like, oh, St. Mary's is an amazing campus. It's so friendly. Um, Halifax is a wonderful place to live. And look, you can wear shorts all year round. So it's really not that bad. And so I thought, oh, okay, Canada doesn't seem too bad. And I kind of just put it on the back burner because the time that they came to talk to us um, was about two years 
before I really needed to make that decision. And then when, you know, fast forward two years, when I was finishing off my state college in Antigua, now I needed to make the decision about where to do undergrad. And I had not really had any sort of advisor or mentor to help me figure out what the journey really was. Like I said, I just wanted, I knew I wanted to be a doctor and I needed to go to undergrad for it. I didn't even know where I could apply and except for that one place, because that's the only frame of reference that I had. And so I decided that I would just give it a shot. I recruited about five or six of my friends from Antigua uh, who were in college with me to go to Canada with me. And so we all went together. <laughs> and then it was the worst winter they had in 300 years. Oh, my God. <laughs> and you definitely could not walk in shorts all year round. I don't think you can. I don't think it's their best year. You can walk in shorts all year round. I was I was very disappointed when I went there. But well, not it, that disappointed because you told me where you are right now. I know you guys are hunkering down for a huge snowstorm. Yes, it, it was the beginning of many years of snowbound education. <laughs> I really enjoyed my time in, in Halifax. Um, I spent four years there getting my, my bachelor's degree. And it turns out that I, I ended up going to the school that was actually best known as a, a school of business. And literally 10 minutes down the road was the school that was best known for science and technology, which also had its own medical school. And I had no idea before I actually applied there. So I, I went to St. Mary's and then after I got there, realized that I probably should have gone to Dalhousie <laughs> because that would have been a much easier transition for me to actually get on my journey to medical school. It's neither here nor there. I did not transfer to Dalhousie because it was a much more expensive school and you know my parents were doing their best try to help me with um, school tuition, but I was on scholarships and all these things. And so I just sort of decided to make the best out of the situation that I had. I got a great education. I ended up taking a class at that same Dalhousie University for anatomy as for pre-med prerequisite. And then I thought, okay, well, I'm going to apply to medical school in Canada. I'm just going to stay here and become a Canadian um, resident and then a Canadian citizen. And this is where my life is going to end because Halifax isn't so bad after all. And then I applied to all of the schools in uh, medical schools in Canada. They have a, they had a single application system at that time. And then after a few months, I wasn't really hearing anything. And some friends that I knew that were also applying to medical school had been getting accept acceptance letters or invitations for interviews or rejections. And I wasn't getting anything, not even rejections. So I thought, oh, something's wrong. I emailed the application office and I said, I, I submitted my application on time. I did my MCAT. Why don't I have a actual um, interview or or rejection or anything? And she said, "Oh, I'm sorry, your your application was never finalized." I said, "Excuse me." She oh. says, "Yes, it, your application was rejected in 
from the beginning because you were missing a transcript. I said, no, that can't be. I sent my transcript. All my grades are on my transcript. And she says, let me look. So she went and she looked at it and she said, oh, here, see, you have, you have a, a class, an anatomy class at Dalhousie University, and that's not the school that you are attending. I said, yeah, but my grade is on my transcript. I got an A for that class. And she said, yeah, but we needed the transcript from Dalhousie, the actual Dalhousie transcript. But nobody ever told me that. And so the, they, they turned out to completely just reject my application. I had no idea. And so I missed that complete application cycle. Oh my God. I can just imagine <laughs> yeah. how you were feeling during that phone call. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> all the blood leaving your face. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. And so I thought, okay, well, all is not lost. I had also applied to a few schools in the United States. I thought this was my second choice, you know, going to school in America was my second choice. And my MCAT score had been just like average. Uh, with with the exception of my verbal reasoning score, you know, whether we write your paragraphs and because I, I, that one, I just completely blew it out of the water. I love to write, but I think it was organic chemistry or physics or something like that, that made my overall score just average. But I thought average is pretty good. I should be able to get into medical school, <laughs> except for the fact that the schools, the medical schools that I applied to, again, no advisor no mentor to help me through this process. The schools that I applied to were schools that I had heard about on TV. Um, <laughs> no, no kidding. So I used to watch Saved by the Bell a lot. <laughs> and so, so Jesse, one of the characters, was applying. I can't remember now if she was applying to med school or law school. But she applied to Stanford and Yale and Harvard and Hopkins and all these places. So these are the places that I applied to. And I had no every that time I amazing. tell the story, like I can't I can't tell the story with a with a straight face because it's really laughable that it never occurred to me that there were more schools out there than what Jesse applied to on Save by the Bell. And it's not <laughs> like you were applying from halfway around the world yeah and we're using like a sh a show that was like translated and then subtitled <laughs> and so you had like no other frame of reference for what this country is like you were you were next door yeah but it, but it shows to it goes to tell you because my my frame of reference even though i was in canada applying for this my frame of reference was still in the caribbean and in the where I grew up, when you're going to when you're going to like professional schools, your options basically, if you're staying in the Caribbean, it's University of the West Indies, right? And I University of the West Indies is a phenomenal school. There's so many amazing physicians that have come out of University of the West Indies. Some of those, some of them have trained me. But I was going through a rebellious phase and I was determined not to go to UE because my dad went to UE for law school. And for some reason, I just didn't want to go to the same school that my dad did. It had There was no logic whatsoever. But that's what I had said to myself. I'm not going to go to University of the West Indies. Had I decided to go to University of the West Indies, I probably would have had much more mentor support 
because there would have been people to reach out to that my family would have been familiar with that could have helped to guide me. But I decided to kind of just go on this different path and do it all on my own. And I, I didn't think that I should go find somebody within the university setting where I was to help me. I figured if num- if no one was advising me as sort of their job, then maybe nobody existed to actually do that to help me. Part of it might also have been the fact that I was pre-med in a, pre- in a predominantly business school. And perhaps if I was at Dalhousie, um, which had their own med school, I might have been connected with people who knew this process a little bit better and the decisions that I would have made might have been different. So a lot of things that could have gone differently, but I I actually don't regret any of it because it turns out to just be just a really funny story. Um, (laughs) um, That it is. So needless to say, I was rejected from all of those schools and I still have quite a few of those rejection letters. Some of them didn't bother to re- like respond to me at all. You did that too? Um, I did the yeah. same thing. Because I, I, actually, I, I didn't think I wanted to go to med school when I was an undergrad and I didn't decide until late in the game. So I had to, I ended up taking the MCATs late and uh, I finished all my requirements, but not until the end of senior year. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't apply until the following year. And so I didn't, re- I didn't have a mentor either. And so I just graduated. Uh, I just applied to my state schools and then the top schools, not realizing that I wasn't a top applicant. Right. Um, you know, I had good MCAT scores and good grades, but yeah, you know, not like tons of research. You know, I didn't, I was a solid standard can- candidate. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I ended up getting tons of rejection letters uh, and then ended up sneaking into a place where I had waitlisted and, and, okay. and I kept those, I kept those rejection letters. And one of the places where I was rejected ended up being a place that I was a, that I did my residency. Yes, exactly. So I did, I did otolaryngology <laughs> at Georgetown and I had been rejected from uh, Georgetown med school. So I ended up teaching the med students at the school that had re- rejected me as a medical student. <laughs> That's amazing. And yeah, so Isn't I guess that wonderful? Not, I thought I was a crazy person for uh, <laughs> no keeping my rejection letters, but I guess no. I'm not. I'm not the only no, one. You're, unless we're gone now, unless we're crazy gone. together. Yeah. <laughs> no, I kept them all, and um, I actually use them in when I give talks now about the medical school journey and about failure and rejection and how it's not the end of the world. I show copies of my rejection letters so that people, you know, we, in, in medicine, um, especially with the age of social media, we, there's a lot of positivity out there. We show a lot of our accomplishments and, you know, the grants that we get and the papers that we publish, but we don't talk enough about the failures and the rejections. Right, and, all people get is survivorship yeah, bias. Exactly. Right? Like they so, think, oh yeah, I can, if, if you just work hard and follow exactly. your dreams. Exactly. Um, so I like to show those things. Um, and every so often I like to, you know, if I'm, if I'm ever feeling like, gosh, this is, this particular rejection is really tough for me. I remember those and, and how I felt when I got those rejection letters and thinking, am I ever going to be a doctor? Because what am I going to do now? I knew I was never going to take the MCAT again. That I knew for sure. <laughs> like that test, again, nobody prepared me for how awful that test was. And I 
went away that summer to do a to be a summer camp counselor and thinking, oh, I'm just going to study for the MCAT while I'm at camp. And well, that didn't happen, but I had a lot of fun. And so it's okay. But then I come home and I had two weeks to study for the MCAT. And I... I was like, okay, I can do this. Like, I'm smart. I was at the top of my class, you know, in in undergrad. And so like, ah, I got this. And I get in there. I'm like, oh my God, this is the hardest exam that I have ever taken in my life. I don't even know if I passed that test. And after I came out of the exam, I was like, whatever happens, I'm never taking that test again. (laughs) So I was hoping that I did well. And, you know, with the scores that I had gotten, if I had applied to more schools, more realistic schools, I probably would have gotten into medical school in the U.S. But again, I didn't realize, I didn't know about any of those things, but I knew I was not so taking that test. from Jesse Spano. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> so what happened next? So, so I was talking with my dad and he was still in Antigua. And I said to him, dad, I don't know what I'm going to do because... I need to be a doctor. That's all I've wanted to do my entire life, but I've just hit a roadblock. And he said, well, why don't you come home and go to med school at home? And before I left Antigua to go to St. Mary's, there was one medical school in Antigua. And I'm not going to say the name, but this was not really like I had no interest in going to this medical school. It had been there for quite some time. And I was a little bit suspicious about who was actually graduating from there because there was one commercial of graduations from that school. And it was always the same people for at least the eight years that I lived in Antigua. The commercial never changed. I'm like, really? No, nobody else ever graduated from this school. Like, why is it the same people from when I first moved there eight years ago? So I was a little skeptical and I was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to school in Antigua. And he said, no, no, no. There was a new school that opened while you've been away. It's very new. They haven't graduated the class yet. And I was like, that's kind of a risk. (laughs) What? I don't know if I should take that risk. And he said, just come home for Christmas like you were planning to, and then let's meet with the dean. By the way, I already met with the dean and told him that you're at the top of your class and he's willing to give you a full scholarship. So I was like, okay, wow. well, let's have, let's have the meeting and see what happens. And so I met with him and I met with the dean and I met with the president of the school. And they you know, shared their mission with me. Uh, to, the name of the school is American University of Antigua College of Medicine. And so they shared the, their mission uh, to, to really make an impact in developing physicians to help with the physician shortage in the United States and also directly address the shortage of minority phys- physicians in the United States. And they shared their vision for what the school would eventually become. Because at the time that I was considering getting involved with the school, it literally was a few buildings on a plot and the buildings were, they were made, they had like corrugated um, iron and like not, they were not fancy buildings. And there was nothing fancy about the school at all. And I kind of, 
I think maybe something about that sort of endeared me to the school because I was going to say how did, like, how did those applications to all those fancy schools uh, work out? For yeah, you? yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I decided after talking with them, I decided that I would give it. I would give it a shot because what do I? What did I have to lose? A at the end of the day, if it if something bad was going to happen and maybe the school like went under or something, at least I wouldn't have a bunch of loans. <laughs> And B, this could be a, an opportunity for me to do a lot of great things. And so I decided to just run with it. It was a little scary. As you can imagine, there was nobody really for me to reach out to and say, hey, you know, you graduated from the school. What do you think of this school? Right. They were still in the stages where they were still figuring stuff out. But I went there and the great news for me was it was just going back home. So I stayed home for the first two years of medical school and, you know, drove into the school. I didn't have to worry about housing or anything like that. And I met some great people there, including my husband. And so that's, you know, reason number one, two, three, why I wouldn't change, you know, the direction that things went for me because he, you know, his journey to to med school there was also one where he kind of decided at the last minute, hey, I'll give this place a choice, uh, a chance. And so we both ended up there and met, and we we became study buddies, which is how it all, always happens with these uh, med school loves. So while I was there, I did really well and graduated at the top of my class. I was valedictorian, and. I got, we left the island after two years to move to the United States to do our clinical rotations. And so this is how Caribbean medical schools are different from some other foreign medical schools where you, you may do all of your um, studies outside of the United States. So for example, schools in schools in um, other places like India, Pakistan, in Ireland, et cetera, the students are doing all of their studies there. And then when the time comes for residency, then they kind of enter the U.S. healthcare system from the residency standpoint, whereas the Caribbean medical schools in general have the two years of basic science on the island and then um, have the third and fourth year medical school uh, clinical rotations on the mainland in the United States. And so well, there let's, let's talk about that for a second because part of the reason for doing this podcast is to educate American graduates about what the challenges are for the international medical graduates. What actually when I was a medical student it was foreign medical graduates, right? Yeah. FMGs. Yeah. And yeah. now that nomenclature has changed to international medical graduates just to be clear, we're talking about the same thing. So if you graduate from the Caribbean or you're going to school in the Caribbean, how do you choose your rotations in the United States? How do you choose your, how do you get set up with those clinical rotations? So usually the school has these agreements with other United States hospitals or academic medical centers, sometimes also community hospitals and clinics, where they they set up an agreement that allows the students of the, those schools to come and rotate side by side usually with their, their U.S. grads uh, or U.S. medical students. There's, uh, I don't know all of the, the business side of it, but I'm sure that there is 
money that exchanges hands that says, here, you know, we'll give you this um, in exchange for allowing our students to rotate at your hospitals. And then which hospitals they choose kind of depends on which uh, agreements the individual school has with the hospital. So when I started at my school, they had very few hospitals that they had agreements with. And every year that would change and they would expand and include many more. And right now the students at our my school can rotate at a number of different locations across the country. And it helps to have that wide of a berth for students to be able to rotate because that's sort of where they're getting their experience, not only within the United States healthcare system, but just exposure to program directors and uh, attendings who will be writing letters of recommendation and these other experiences that are going to be helpful for the residency application process. But for my part, the students themselves didn't really have much choice in where you get to actually go. The, the school sort of places you in certain areas. When I was um, in med school, uh, we were fortunate to have practically all of our rotations in New York State, in Staten Island, with the exception of three or four months that we did in Atlanta. And, and you were used to island living, right? So yeah, the transition yeah. to Staten Island wasn't, yeah. wasn't that hard. Right? It, it, was, it wasn't that hard. It was definitely warmer than... Halifax, Nova Scotia, which was which was a good thing considering that when I left Halifax, I left all of my winter gear because I was like, I'm never going back to a place that snows again. And then I ended up in New York and where I am right now, which is Omaha, Nebraska. So that didn't work out that well in terms of uh, selling all of my winter gear. But um, Staten Island was great. I loved it. We did our rotations with students who were, they were part of New York Medical College I think I think it has a new name now. I'm not quite sure, but the students who rotated at Richmond University Medical Center were from that school. Um, and then um, I hope there it's was still New York Medical College. My, my brother is a uh, professor there right now. Oh, okay, all right, good. Pretty sure um, it's still New York Medical. Okay, College. and then and then there was also there was also another DO school that would send students there as well, and. Uh, I think Truro or something like that. I'm not quite sure. And so we would be rotating alongside the students from the United States med school. And then uh, we would be rotating with the, the residents at that hospital as well. And so it was a, this was a community, uh, a, hosp- a university affiliated community hospital. So they had residency programs for all of the core subspecialties, surgery, medicine, psychiatry, et cetera, that we rotated with. So it was good that we were able to have that experience hands-on. And so we weren't, so the entry into the healthcare system for residency was not the first time that any of us would have experienced working with EMRs, working with, you know, understanding HIPAA, understanding some of the nuances of a um, U.S. medical system compared to, so let's say I had gone to University of the West Indies, for example, that would be considered a foreign medical school. And I would have done all of my training either in Jamaica or Trinidad. 
And when I would start residency, that would be the very first time that I'm experiencing the United States medical system. So if you've done your clerkships in the United States versus internationally, that's not something that would need to be repeated, right? If you've right. finished, but residency, if you do residency outside of the United States, that is something, except for Canada, that must be repeated. So it doesn't matter what country you do it in. If it is somewhere outside of the United States and Canada, none of residency is considered something that you that yes. goes towards your counts towards your training. That's correct. And to in fact, I trained with several brilliant physicians who had come from other countries who were practicing physicians in their countries and ended up um, having to start from the beginning. And sometimes, you know, maybe so I encountered somebody who was a, a urologist in India who wanted to come to came to the United States with their family and he ended up doing internal medicine and uh, then went on to do gastroenterology but couldn't couldn't get into a urology residency here in the US even though he was a urologist where he came from and so that's kind of something that is is a challenge for a lot of uh, foreign medical grads. If you've done your residency and training elsewhere and you're established and you're looking to come to the U.S. to to settle and would like to continue your specialty, it's not guaranteed that you're going to keep doing what you actually trained to do in your country. Do, there's something. This might be something that that you don't have an answer for, but because I didn't, sorry, I didn't prepare you with with this question because it just occurred to me. I think there are some people that do only fellowships in the United States. So let's say you're trained, I'm an ENT there, you're trained as an otolaryngologist and, and you're practicing in your country, you move to the United States, you do say a PEDS fellowship and a head and neck fellowship and a rhinology fellowship. And now you can practice because you've done three years of training in the United States. Uh, but only in the form of fellowships, not right. an actual residency. I, is so I've heard about that. And I think the reason f- for that being a loophole, which I'm glad exists, is because perhaps some of those subspecialty fellowships are not ACGME accredited fellowships. And so you can you can do them out of order. So like even for example, you I I met I met a US grad who did internal medicine residency and applied in the match, was interested in a gastroenterology fellowship, did not did not get the gastroenterology fellowship and then decided to do a, a hepatology fellowship because that was not through the match. And so it would make sense that if if it's not through the match, maybe the ACGME requirement for the residency training may not be as strict, but I don't know. I never actually looked into into that specifically. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't either. So t- don't take our word for it that this is something to do. But I, I'm 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 pretty sure that these are options, and I, I don't know how. But I, you know, if you're not, and a lot of the fellowships they're looking for someone who's an attending, right? They're looking for someone who can take primary call. But but I guess if there there are fellowships that are that are out there, so. You, I think you were alluding to this, that international medical graduates face a type of discrimination, right? Yeah. Because they're looking to get into a competitive program, 
but sometimes they're written off just because they're graduating from an international school. Yeah. So let me give you an example. Um, so I did my my clinical rotations at a hospital in, in New York, right? And so this place, I knew the people quite well there. I knew I was going into internal medicine. I had a letter of recommendation from one of the attendings in internal medicine there. They, you know, the program director came to me and said, you know, we really would love for you to stay here. Please make sure that you apply. We would love to have you as a resident. So I did. I applied and I got a rejection letter from them. And I was like, oh, that's odd. Yeah. Why would they why would they reject me after like all of these love letters? And you know what I mean? And sounds so, like they were courting um, you. Yeah. So then a few weeks later, I I thought it was weird, but I was getting other invitations for interviews. And so I didn't make that big of a deal of it. And I wasn't quite sure if I should make a big deal of it because I was still rotating there. And so I just left it alone. And then the program director came up to me one day when I was on wards and she said, you never applied. And I was like, yeah, I did. She said, but we haven't interviewed you. I was like, you, you rejected me. And she said, that's not possible. And I said, well, here's the rejection letter. And I showed her the email. and. So she was quite confused. We went and figured it out. And what happens is they have filters on the ARAS application. ARAS is, you know, they're with the centralized um, application system, program directors get thousands of applications, right? And so somehow they have to figure out how to, how to narrow things down to be able to invite people. And so there is a filter for where you went to medical school, if you're a U.S. grad or if you're an IMG. And their filter was on. And because their filter was on, I automatically got rejected. They never even saw my application. And so that's, that's the first hurdle that you go through, right? Um, will, the, will the program even know that you are a fantastic uh, student who would make a fantastic doctor if their filter sets to weed out all IMGs. And once you get, say the filter is not set to weed out all IMGs, you get through, you get it, you, they get your application, then they look at it, and then they look at where specifically you went to medical school. And so the, set, the second hurdle for me was my school was still relatively new. There, by the time that I was graduating, I, I was in the second graduating class of the medical school. So people hadn't heard about my school. When they heard about Caribbean medical schools, they heard about St. George's and Ross University. And so those are names that have been around since the 70s and they trust some of those names, but they've never heard of my school. And so then that's the other one where we're like, we don't know what school this is. We're not going to give that person a shot. If they, if they get around the school's name and they say, okay, we're going to give this person a shot, then they look at the grades. Um, the USMLE cutoffs, even though they may, some places may be very explicit about it and others may not, but will still implicitly have this bias against international grads where you're held to a much higher standard. If they expect a um, USMLE score of say, 230 for most of the U.S. grads that they accept for interviews, they're looking for 240, 250 for IMG. And so even though 
you you took an exam, a standardized exam that everybody else took, that you should be able to be held to the same standard as anybody else who took that exam, you're still held to a higher standard. Like your your grade does not count for as much as it would for a US grad. Once you get past that, then the question is whether or not the place that is actually inviting you to interview, are they actually interested in having you join the residency? And then you look at the number of foreign grads that are in their residency program. And there's websites and forums out there where med students are looking to get advice on where to go and where not to go. And U.S. medical grads are being discouraged from going to schools, to, to residency programs that have foreign grads in them. Like, so it's as effectively if, turning into segregation. Exactly. And so then you find a lot of, a lot of residencies that are just most predominantly IMGs or residencies that are predominantly U.S. grads. And then the ones that will have a few or some equitable distribution are not as common. The problem is, I don't know why this is, but a lot of the places that you find that have a predominant number of foreign grads, you go there. So I visited a few of those places when I was interviewing and the culture there is not really one that is very supportive. And in some of them, it's actually quite malignant. And that feeds into the um, recommendations by others to not apply to those places. And then it becomes, those are the places that, those are the only places that foreign medical grads are given a chance because the other students are not applying there. And then it just becomes a cycle. And I can imagine that that really breeds imposter syndrome, which is something that you you talked about in, in a blog post that you wrote about this, right? Like, I've been rejected from all of these places. Yeah. Do I really even deserve to be here? So why don't you talk briefly about the imposter syndrome that the international medical graduates can face? Yeah, it, it's it's definitely something that you you find yourself confronted with often as regardless of what your scores and your capabilities are, because you are wondering whether or not you are there to just fill a spot and just be a warm body, or if you are there because this place saw some potential in you and would like to nourish you and help you to become that fantastic doctor. And so for me personally, I ended up going to do my residency at Mayo Clinic. And I there was like a huge amount of imposter syndrome for me there. It took me months to really believe that I that nobody was going to show up one day and be like, hey, what are you doing here? Wait, wait, because, wait. <laughs> More snow? Yep, more snow. (laughs) (laughs) I know I can't I can't escape it. I went there for a rotation. So this is something else that I didn't touch on that for IMGs, it's really important to really try to get some of these away rotations. 
but now a lot of places actually allow IMGs to rotate. And so like you get, when you're giving fourth years advice and you're saying, you know, as you're trying to figure out what you want to do, schedule your audition rotations and make sure that you go to a place that you'd like to go and et cetera. And for an IMG, finding places that will actually accept us because we're IMGs is really difficult. So I applied to a few places. Most places flat out said, no, we won't take you because you're, you're not a U.S. grad. Some places said, sure, we'll take you. You have to pay us three grand for us to take you for that month. And so of all the places that I applied to, Mayo Clinic actually was the one that was the most inviting, which was very surprising to me because I totally expected like it, you know, it's a world class, world famous hospital. Like they're not going to accept an IMG and they had the same application system for anybody whether they were an IMG or a U.S. grad or didn't matter where you were doing your medical school. And so I went there for a month and I really liked it. And again, while I was there, I was thinking there's no point of even applying for residency here because why would they even want to give me a residency position? And I attendings that I worked with while I was here um, said that's, that's really not a smart way of thinking you need to apply because you you actually are a really good candidate for this residency and so if you don't get an interview that's fine but you don't just prevent yourself from that opportunity just because you're getting in your head and so i applied for the residency there i got an interview when i was interviewing one of the interviewers said to me to my face well uh, if i was in charge of who gets interviews and who doesn't get interviews, you would never have gotten an interview because I don't know what your school is. What is this, American University of what? And I just stared at him because I was like, okay, where is this guy going? And then he said, but now that I've gotten you in this office and I've gotten to know you, I realize how wrong that assumption would have been. I was like, okay. Yeah, I would um, not have take that statement. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just stared. I didn't, I didn't say anything. <laughs> I just stared. How, how is it you want me to react yeah. to that statement? Yeah. I think he was trying to endear you to him. Yeah, but, yeah. Mm. It didn't, it didn't have that effect. Yeah, I kind of, when I matched there, I, I sort of stared clear of that person oh. um, after I matched there because I was like, I don't really know how this guy feels about me, yeah. or maybe I do. <laughs> But, you know, so then, so I matched and it was amazing that I was there and I was the first person from my school to ever match there. And it was, it was great, but I walked around the halls the first couple months, like thinking, is somebody going to change their mind about me? Like, do they really want me here? And I, you know, I've just kind of put my nose down and just grind to the work. And eventually I realized that I deserve to be there just as much as anybody else. And I was not going to uh, fall prey to the imposter syndrome that makes me feel like I don't belong when clearly I have done the work and this is the reward for my work. But at the same time, there is still, you can still feel like there is some unconscious bias that's associated with the IMG status. Um, people might 
you know, the first thing that people ask you when you meet new people at that stage in residency is, oh, here, where, where did you go to medical school? And, you know, when you say that you went to medical school in the Caribbean, it's like, oh, and then that's the end of the conversation. <laughs> like, well, what does that oh actually mean? And for a time, I used to give excuses about, you know, why I went to medical school in the Caribbean. Like you would ask me, oh, where did you go to school? And I would start off with, oh, well, I was born in the Caribbean. And so, you would tell that whole story that exactly. you began the podcast with all, exactly. all over again. Exactly. And so like <laughs> to justify why I was there. Like, no, really, I'm smart. I promise I'm smart, but I, I ended up in the Caribbean. And now I'm like, yeah, I went to American University of Antigua. What? You know, because I realized that you can go around questioning whether or not you belong at a place just because of where you trained, or you can show the people who are training with you that it doesn't matter where you went to medical school. And in fact, the, the experiences that I have had as a result of the choices that I made that had me end up in medical school in Antigua are ones that demonstrate grit. They demonstrate the fact that I am reliable, I'm dependable, and I have a stick to itness that you might be needing in certain situations. It demonstrates that I'm a leader. It demonstrates that I can find myself emerging from whatever situation with success. And I was determined to turn things around and turn that bias that I was even feeling towards myself around um, to the point where people were just assuming that I went to Mayo Medical School now. And I was like, and I, then I would be correcting like, no, actually, I went to school in Antigua. And you'd be like, oh, I had no idea. Like, okay, that's so the point. It sounds like the advice that you would give to someone in your situation is, you're there, you deserve to be there, let your work do the talking. Exactly. Exactly. The other thing, the other thing that is important that I think we need to touch on is mentoring and sponsoring and how important that is for international grads. So while I was in residency, I, I didn't really know a lot of people um, who were attendings, who had gone through, who were international grads like myself which was a little bit difficult for me to connect as I was going through some of that inner turmoil. But I connected with a colleague of mine, a peer who was a year ahead of me, who went to a different Caribbean medical school, um, school, and she and I became friends. And it was good to have somebody to connect with and share some of those stories. And then eventually we found other people like us who are in different departments at Mayo Clinic. Um, and that was helpful for us. But now for me going, you know, I'm an attending uh, in Nebraska and I have realized that part well, actually, of my... We just, sorry, we just skipped from residency to, uh, to what you're doing now. So just briefly mention, because you did a fellowship and where you were, so just, just uh, so briefly, I did yeah. my so I did internal medicine residency followed by three years of ID fellowship, infectious disease fellowship at Mayo Clinic. 
in Rochester, Minnesota. And then in 2017, I graduated from fellowship and took my first faculty position at University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. So that's where I am right now. And part of my part of this transition for me, recognizing and embracing my status as an IMG and proud to be an IMG, also a woman of color and trying to reconcile all of the potential biases that may be in the vicinity of this type of intersectionality. I, I look for medical residents now who are like that, who might be feeling maybe alone, might be feeling that kind of imposter syndrome because they maybe went to school in, in the Caribbean, because they are a, a person of color, because they're a woman or any of those sort of things and tr- really try to reach out and provide the advice and, and mentorship that I didn't really have myself when I was in those early stages of my training. And that's something that as I think back to my entire journey, how I ended up from, you know, initially in, you know, in Antigua as a uh, high school student, how I ended up from there to where I am now, a lot of the, the missteps along the way that got me to this particular location had to do with a lack of mentorship. Now, again, I wouldn't change my I would not change my path for the world right now. I'm quite happy with the path that I took. But if I had to look back and see, well, what was missing in all of those situations, it really would be having somebody to advise me. And so that first piece of advice that I would give to an an international grad is to find a mentor, seek them out. If there's not somebody that's immediately in your vicinity, look outside of where you are, look outside of your school, look outside of your, the hospital where you're rotating at, but you've got to find somebody to help you with that process. And it will make it so much easier for you going down the line if you can have somebody to advise. And it, I'm sure your medical school, because if, if you're already in a medical school, probably has a list of graduates yes. right? that you might yes. be able to access and then find people that are where you want to be and yeah. reach out. Because yes. I think if anything would be flattering to someone to say, hey, I'm attending your medical school and I saw that you're in this position, you know, would you mind if I asked you some some questions? And I'm yeah. sure... Um, people in that position would be the vast majority of the time would be more than happy to to help you out and answer your question. Absolutely. And it's something that I do myself. I've had multiple students from my medical school reach out to me. I, I give my my email address to the to the med school the med school and multiple students have reached out to me from I had one young woman reach out to me before she even started medical school. She was she was pre-med and she was looking at the school and she saw my name and my picture, I think, show up on the med school website. And she found my email address and reached out to me and said, I'm applying. Can I keep talking to you? Can I keep emailing you about this process? And I was like, yeah, sure. I was still a resident when she had um, sent me that email. And she is now a, she's now an intern in, in Texas. And she and I had kept in close contact throughout that time. I actually was able to get her a 
visit in rotation at Mayo Clinic. She came and she like presented a poster at a conference that we had there. And it was just it was a wonderful experience for her. But she and I have kept that mentorship relationship going and several other students after her have reached out to me and I'm happy to do that kind of stuff because again I I didn't really I didn't really have it. I didn't know that I could just reach out to somebody that I didn't know to ask them questions. It was it didn't occur to me that people would be okay with some random medical student who is freaked out about the journey to ask them questions and it really is okay. I think that is that's that's fantastic advice. Before you were getting into the difference between a mentor and a sponsor, and I think that that's because we're running out of time. Yeah. If we could just briefly cover the difference between a mentor and a sponsor. Okay. And then so, uh, wrap it up. So the a mentor a mentor can provide advice, career assistance, provide collaborations at any stage in one's career. And so and a mentor does not have to be somebody that is more advanced in their career. A mentor can be somebody who's at the same peer level as you, that you guys are working together, finding opportunities for each other, and just listening. It might be somebody that has maybe gone through the program just a year ahead of you, and they can help to advise you on the things that you need to do um, to create those, to tell you what the steps are, to illuminate the path for you. A sponsor, on the other hand, is the one who opens that door that that's at the end of the illuminated path and said, here is where you need to go for the next level. And not only do they open the door, but they walk you through and make sure that you can get to whatever that next level in your career is by putting their reputation on the line. A lot of times it's personal or professional risk that they are taking if the person they are sponsoring does not deliver and meet expectations. So a sponsor is the person who says, I am usually somebody who is more uh, senior in their career. They say, well, I'm, I'm an associate professor, I'm a, I'm a professor, and I'm on this high-ranking specialty committee. And I would like to recommend my junior colleague, Dr. Jasmine Marcellin, to join this committee. This is a big deal committee, but I know she can handle it, even though she is just like 18 months out of fellowship. So a mentor is someone that gives you advice and a sponsor is someone that gives you opportunities. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Great. Well, this is something, this is the type of thing that you, you blog about, right? You're an infectious disease doctor, but it's not all bugs and drugs. Yes. So where can people find you online? So I'm most active on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Dr. J.R. Marcellin. And I am also, I also blog for different types of uh, blogs. I have our University of Nebraska Medical Center blog, and that's mostly ID stuff that's related there. I do, I blog for Doximity and some others as well, like including Physicians Weekly, but I'm most active on on Twitter um, at that handle, Dr. J.R. Marcellin. And that's something that I'm going to be asking of my guests starting with you. So we'll talk about it offline. I'm going to be asking everyone for just one tweet length statement that you want people to know about international medical graduates. So 
listeners, be sure to look for that online. Well, Dr. Jasmine Marcellin, it has been a pleasure speaking to you. Certainly very enlightening for me to learn about some of the challenges that international medical graduates face and your extremely interesting story, your personal story. So, you know, very, uh, very revealing. And also the fact that you're able to comfortably share all of that personal insight and personal information with us is, I really appreciate it very much. Well, Brad, thank you so much for having me. I think one of the important things um, for all of us who go through these journeys is to really be able to be vulnerable with ourselves and with other people, because that's the only way that we can really have um, success and growth and learn from ourselves and from each other. And so I'm always happy to share my, my trials and tribulations, my failures. I love sharing my successes but it's important to share some of the, the bumps along the road as well. And I'm, I'm really proud of where I am today and the journey that got me to this because uh, it, it's really showed that I have that grit that is what it takes to be a great doctor. Vulnerable. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't think of it as I was saying. Brene Brown. <laughs> yes, Brene Brown. Yep. Excellent uh, <laughs> TED Talk. So, Clearly, you have a lot of experience braving storms in your life. So good luck yep. braving the snowstorm that you're yes, looking thank right you. now. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.